Listeners, welcome to another great edition of The Learning Curve. I'm joined by my co-host and compadre, Kara. And unlike previous shows where we actually share a story of the week, the only story of the week within the world of education is the Nate scores and Nate reactions. And so we're going to dedicate our entire session between us to that section. So Kara, how are you? I, you know, I mean, we knew it was coming. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a great week for American education, for U.S. education. I think, Gerard, I might go as like a declining nape score for Halloween. I haven't quite figured out <laughs> how that, like a precipitous drop in math for Halloween. And I'd like to <laughs> certainly remind my home state, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, that who keeps touting that they remain number one on two measures. It's like number one of what? Of like the most disastrous thing we've seen since Nate came on the scene. So I'm I'm eager to talk about the maybe we can shade. I'm hearing shade. Oh, I have, I have a lot more to throw, don't you worry. And then I <laughs> it's solutions oriented. But like for real, could we stop it, states? with the press releases trying to sugarcoat this because as a parent, I find it offensive. So if you were one of those states that held steady, which is the best thing that could happen, right? If you were one of those states that held steady on NAEP and you didn't, right? Then I think that you probably fall into the category of, it's like, you know, it's Florida did it in fourth grade reading. There were a handful of others. It's sort of like you fall into the category of you probably had reforms going on for a really long time that just sort of like gave you a bit of a buffer to fall back on, but not something to pat yourself on the back about. And let's let's not even start. Nobody has even looked yet, I think, in a really meaningful way at what achievement gaps really look like, because we're talking about folks, just an overall precipitous decline. And I think we all know that it's going to be worse for the kids who have the least access. So anyway, Gerard, I just I put it all out there. Let's get going. What I mean, tell me you have something more optimistic to say about all of this. I've got something that's optimistic and pessimistic and yet a reality check with a dash of pragmatism. So here's the pragmatism part. I've had conversations with several friends of mine who are in the reform space, but who are parents and who are more interested in the native results for their school or state than ever before. And part of that is the, not post-pandemic, but moving through pandemic realization that, hey, schools closed, this could have an impact on my child's education. So one of the things that I did for them, because this question came up all the time, when did NAEP even begin? Really the origins of NAEP, the National Assessment of Education Progress, has its origins in 1963-64. And that's when three men in the area of education, one being Francis Kelton, who at the time was the U.S. Commissioner of Education, former, you know, later, actually former, was a Dean of Harvard Education School. You had John Gardner, who at that time was president of the Carnegie Foundation, and Ralph Taylor, who was the Charter Director of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. And they got together, and Francis Kelton said, listen, how do we really know what American students in our schools truly know? And he raised that question in the 1960s, but guess what? The idea that the department at that time, the Office of Education had to report to the public the quote, condition and progress of American education, end quote, was a mandate not from the 1960s or the 1920s. 
It was from 1867, from a congressional act. So the idea that we want to hold schools accountable or know what they do is much older than the U.S. Department of Education as we know it today. So the Carnegie Foundation, along with the Ford Foundation, decided to provide money, and that led to a couple of conferences, gathering of people and scholars, and that laid the foundation for what we now know of as NAEP, which is the nation's report card to assess scores. So, Kara, to get to your part about the shade throwing, so that was in 64 in terms of one of the conferences. What else was taking place in 1964? It was the start of the Gomer Pyle show. And what the heck does Gomer Pyle have to do with me? I'll tell you exactly what it has to do. For those of you too young to know what Gomer Pyle is, go and take a look online. For those of you who've got more gray hair than myself, we probably saw a Gomer Pyle show. And there was one word he would repeat three times, and that was his signature line. And I think it's the signature line from what I'm hearing about Nate results. And here it is. Surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> That's what Gomer Pyle. <laughs> I knew you were going there. I knew you it. Knew I was going there. Surprise, surprise, surprise. We had a major drop in scores. And as you said, Kara, we have a number of organizations, left, right, reform, traditional, otherwise, with press releases. You can read those. So here is my pragmatic part for the listeners. I want to provide a few items for you to think about, to think about what Nate means in your life. So one of them is an article called Educational Organizations as Loosely Coupled Systems. It was authored by Carl White in a 1976 article, and I'll make sure I send this to Michaela so she can post on our page. But it's one of the best articles I read at that time. I would even say even now, one of the better articles, which wasn't blaming teachers. It didn't blame principals. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about unions. It wasn't about reform. It was simply saying that if you want to know some of the challenges with educational organizations, you have to understand how loosely coupled they are. And without giving away all of it, it just really tells you the institutional challenges that we have with getting policy programs and people from idea to implementation. So I would say take a look at that. Number two, one of our colleagues, Dr. Shepard Finn, one of the best scholars and practitioners for the last 30 years in education, this year, through Harvard Education Press, he actually published a book called Assessing the Nation's Report Card, Challenges and Choices for Nate. Must read for those who want to get a better idea of what we're doing. As you were talking about states and throwing some shade on Massachusetts, I took a look at what Chad Alderman, who is with Edunomics, he did a nice breakdown on states based upon race and income. So if you look at the highest scores for states in terms of white students, it's D.C., Department of yeah. Defense, and Florida. White students in D.C. used to be Chocolate City, maybe now more Caramel City, but very interesting, Department of Defense. States, the worst, West Virginia, Oregon, and Maine. What about black students who have the highest scores? Department of Defense again, Texas and Florida. Let's look at for Hispanics. Department of Defense, Mississippi and Wyoming. And let me give a shout out to Mississippi because they decided a few years ago to start working with their teachers through Peggy Bookins, their governor and others to make it happen. And when we look at Pacific Island students, New Jersey and Massachusetts, so some love from Massachusetts there. And for low-income students, Florida, Wyoming and Indiana. Those yeah. states let you know that you can work with low-income students. 
you can get results. And I think we should take a look there. My home state, and then I'll end with this, of Virginia, mm. Governor Youngkin said, to, well, through in his press release, that today every Virginia clearly sees that our children need us now more than ever, and he identified the importance of transparency. Our Secretary of Education, Gudera, also said the results offer clear and heart-wrenching statement about Virginia's failure and call what we have now a catastrophic decline. And our superintendent of public instruction, Ballot, said that basically that the Democrats, the two previous administrations, had systematically lowered the standards. The response from Democrats was pretty strong. And the reason they say that we had a drop was because, quote, we have staffing shortages in schools across blah, Virginia. Blah, blah, blah. Yep, students <laughs> aren't receiving proper resources. And so on, so on, so on, so on. And get this, now is not the time to point finger at those who are no longer in leadership. Did we say that about the previous presidential administration? That's another story. So yes. we have a lot of finger pointing and a lot of things going on. And at least the resources that I provided should help our readers just get a grasp about some of this stuff outside of party, people, and political interests. Yeah, no, I love it, Gerard. Thank you. And let's, but let's just pause for one minute because I think this argument, there are two arguments happening right now. And one is, well, this test really doesn't mean anything. And why do we place so much emphasis on it? Which you always hear whenever people do poorly, right? We do this with international <laughs> exams. It's like, oh, we're in the middle of everything, even though we spend the most money. It doesn't matter. It's, we're not going to pay attention to that measure. Right. And so I think that that's number one. And then number two is the resources. Can we remind our listeners how much money during the pandemic, which is when this big decline happened, although as Pioneer Institute will remind us in many states, including my home state and I believe your home state, Gerard, NAEP scores have been declining for years. So this is just a precipitous decline on the heels of a steady decline, right? So we, it's something, it's a conversation that we should have been having in more meaningful ways before the pandemic. But resources are there. I have been in calls just in the past two weeks with states who are saying some of our districts still haven't really, you know, allocated their funds even though they're supposed to, and it's really vague, and how should we be spending these funds? So to that, I say, please, please, please stop with this madness. The other piece of this is, you know, you gave shout outs and rightly so to the few handful of states who can say like, <laughs> in contrast to everybody else, we were moderately like, we might have a reason to be sort of not super depressed. Florida, Indiana, Mississippi, what do these states have in common? Well, I can tell you at least two of them and a third on the way have made very heavy investments in things like the science of reading. What does that mean? It means they used evidence-based approaches to teaching basic skills. We obviously need that in mathematics as well because math has been the big story here. Math declines have been precipitous and huge and no state, especially in eighth grade, held steady or improved in math. Everybody declined. The other piece of this is for our listeners, you know, we've got the history of NAEP, but also let's go back to 2001, because what most people think of, if you're a parent and you're thinking about what these tests mean, they think of their state test. Did my kid pass the state test? How is my kid proficient on the state test? Well, what NAEP shows us time and again, and this is what no Child Left Behind all the way back in 2001 when the federal government said we're going to attach federal money to whether or not you have state standards and accountability measures. NAEP was always meant to be the check of whether or not those tests were rigorous enough. 
And so we now know too, that states didn't show these kinds of precipitous, they showed declines, but they did not show these kinds of precipitous declines on their state tests. And that's in part because NAEP is a common standard that we can predict, we can draw a thread from it year to year to year to year, which is why it's so important when we have discussions about, are we gonna change things about NAEP? Because you wanna be able to identify long-term trends. State testing has sort of, if it's happened during the pandemic, if it's happened post-pandemic, it's not happened in a very meaningful way in many places. And there are good reasons for that, but it's really sad. So but part of the thing, Gerard, that I would love to touch upon here is the question of like, what's next? What's next here? Because I, I know I can be the declining NAEP score for Halloween and be all depressed and you could give us Gomer Pyle. And we have to have this moment and then we need to leap to, and so what are we going to do? And as I'm thinking about that question, what are we going to do? I think about, for example, we should point out that schools that generally remained open, meaning we have very limited data because it's a very small data set that Catholic schools across this country were open during the pandemic. And yes, folks, private schools are sampled on the NAEP as well, private, charter, public, they're all there. We know that those schools didn't fare nearly as poorly as their public school counterparts, because even in states that were closed, those schools were by and large open. So as a friend of mine says, Dr. Christy Havana, she says, what this told us is that school matters. So going forward, how do we ensure that when the next thing happens, the next disaster, the next pandemic, the next anything, right? Just getting kids to stay in school. We're still, by the way, having a huge problem with this. How do we ensure that school matters? And one of those things might be taking learning from the pandemic. So many states have poured money into tutoring. Some of them are doing it in a high quality way. What would it look like if that was the new normal for kids? If we doubled down and said, it's not about sending more air quotes resources, read money to districts. It's about getting those very targeted resources that are evidence-based and that we know will make a difference in the hands of families or in the hands of teachers to make sure that they are in the hands of students. I think that's one thing that could make a difference. The other thing is maybe we just need more school. Kids were out of school for a really long time. We, maybe we need to start to have the conversation about like year-round school in many places, extending the school day in many places, time on learning, which we know still isn't happening. We've got a guest to bring in here in just a minute, Gerard, but man, I would love some of your ideas because you have been a state chief twice over and a teacher too. I know you have thoughts on what's next. I would tell researchers and families and lawmakers, if you're interested in identifying what works, take a look at the latest list for Blue Ribbon schools or one from five years ago. Because many times those schools have or serve low-income students. They serve students in rural areas, urban areas, all the challenges, and yet they're able to maintain academic achievement. I would study those schools, and many of those schools are not choice schools. And so for those who say, what can we do for traditional schools, you already have the answer. The Department of Education, your State Department of Education, they've identified high-performing schools with what we call students placed at risk. I would tell families, take a look at those schools and figure out from your department or your superintendent, what can we learn from those schools to utilize for our schools here, whether it's in Charlottesville, whether it's in Richmond or somewhere in your state. And number two, this is probably one of the few times we're gonna to get to just exhale. 
because we've been through a lot for the last two and a half years, and we knew the scores were going to be horrible. Some of us were shocked that they were this bad. Yeah. But we should really, as families, because these are your children, you should really take time to look at it and to ask three questions. What is my school doing to support the academic well-being of my child? And in part, B to that is what can I do to help the school? Number two, identify how your school district or system is spending the money or not spending the money. I think only 15% of the money that you mentioned has been spent to date. And I can tell you, with a possible change in Congress, or even if Congress stays the same, it's going to be a tough case to make if you're trying to tell Congress to give you more money when you didn't spend what you had. Third thing is we've got over 30 gubernatorial elections this year. You still have time to place your vote. Hold your governor accountable Amen. for the next two years for the work. Those are my suggestions. So I won't have to say surprise, surprise, surprise. I love those suggestions. They're clear. They're cogent. And now we know you can be Gomer Pyle for Halloween. Right, Troy? <laughs> Listeners, stay tuned. That. We're going to post a picture on the Pioneer Institute website. Gerard, okay, we get to. Fortunately, we have a guest that is going to take our mind off of all of this today. We have the pleasure to bring you this just special treat just in time for Halloween. We'll be turning over the mic to Mary Connaughton. She's going to speak with Miranda Seymour, who is the definitive biographer of Mary Shelley. And you know Mary Shelley as, yeah, 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 she was she was the poet Shelley's wife. But we're, come on now. We know her as the author of one of the world's most famous novels, Frankenstein, which I should really go back and read. It has been so long. And they're going to discuss the origins of this famous monster and what he represents. I wish everybody who's thinking about it too much a hiatus from this depressing news of the day. Enjoy your Halloween. Eat too many Reese's peanut butter cups. I've already started to indulge. And have a very, very happy Halloween. We will be back, listeners, right after this. Mary Connaughton of Pioneer Institute, and this is our special Halloween edition of The Learning Curve. We are thrilled to have Miranda Seymour as our guest today. Miranda is an English novelist, biographer, and critic. She's been a visiting professor at Nottingham Trent University and a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Her works include biographies of Lady Adeline Morrill, Mary Shelley, and Robert Graves, about whom she also wrote a novel, The Telling, and a radio play, Sea Music. She wrote a group portrait of Henry James in his later years entitled A Ring of Conspirators. In 2008, she published In My Father's House, Elegy for an Obsessive Love, which won the 2008 Penn Ackerley Prize for Memoir of the Year. Seymour's In Byron's Wake covers the lives of Lord Byron's wife and daughter, Annabella Milbank, and Ada Lovelace. She lives in both London and at her family's ancestral home at Thrumpton Hall in Nottinghamshire. Today, we will focus on her biography of Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. Miranda, we are really thrilled to have you here, and welcome to the show. It's lovely to be on the show, and thank you so much for inviting me. We are thrilled. So let's start with a few questions. 
Miranda, you're an accomplished writer and the definitive biographer of Mary Shelley, the author of the classic Gothic novel, Frankenstein. Would you share with our listeners how you first became interested in Mary Shelley and some of the main elements of her brilliant and tragedy-filled life that the general public and students should know more about? I've been interested in Mary Shelley for years because I love the romantics. So I'd read a lot about Byron and read his letters and read his life. And I'd read about the life of Mary Wollstonecraft, her extraordinary mother, who is one of the great figures in feminist history and, of course, was the author of The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And so that was kind of the route by which I came to Mary. But it was also because I seem in my writing of biographies to always have sought out women who I thought had been either underrated or misunderstood. And I was quite intrigued when I was reading a book about Mary Shelley written in 1972, which was right in the kind of throes of the beginning of revisionary work and women's writing and so on. And this was by biographer, I think she's American, called Eleanor Flexner. And she said, Mary Shelley's personality and gifts have been hardly dealt with by posterity always in contrast to her mother. And I remember that really whetted my appetite. That's exactly the kind of thing that makes me think, well, I really need to explore a bit more. So then, of course, I went back to Frankenstein and one can't go back to Frankenstein too often. It's an extraordinary book that always offers new readings, new interpretations, new surprises each time. And the fact that it was written by a girl of 18 was again, appetite wetting to me. It's just so remarkable. But really what I became interested by in Mary Shelley's life, first of all, was probably the fact that I'm a Londoner. And it turned out that Mary Shelley grew up in the London very close to where I myself live, which is North London. And although some of the streets have disappeared and actually that the river near where Mary grew up has actually vanished under the pavements, you can still actually see the places. So she was born there in 1797. Her mother tragically died about three weeks after giving birth to Mary. And I think this was something that cast an enormous and crucial shadow over Mary's life because she was known always as the child of Mary Wollstonecraft and the child of an extraordinary father who in no way was prepared to bring a baby and then a young girl up on his own. He'd been an old bachelor until the year before Mary was born, called William Godwin. William Godwin and, and Mary Wollstonecraft lived together in an area called Summerstown. And when Mary Wollstonecraft died, Godwin was left as the bereft father and widower with this little girl to bring up. And all around Mary, from the really the practically the moment she could understand what anybody was saying, were people who were coming to visit her father and to look at her as this child of Mary Wollstonecraft. They all looked to her to be something extraordinary. And I think that's why when young Percy Shelley came to visit her father and 
met this extraordinary young girl who'd just come back from Scotland wearing the newly fashionable Scottish tartan. And he instantly identified her as not only the daughter of a man he greatly admired, William Godwin, who'd been a radical philosopher who'd fallen on hard times and was now running a bookshop selling children's books, but most of all as the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft. And it was very much in the spirit of her parents that Mary and Shelley and Mary's rather difficult, troublesome stepsister, Claire Claremont, who was much adored by Shelley, which was part of the problem. But they all secretly eloped in 1814. They tiptoed away from her father's house and went off to Europe. Now, why were they eloping? Well, one very good reason was that Percy Shelley was already married to somebody else, so they certainly couldn't get married. But very innocently, they supposed that William Godwin, because at one time he'd been a kind of rebel and a firebrand, and he'd been saying, bring on the French Revolution and let's have a revolution in England. And so he had been somebody who they could really admire the ideas of and the courage of. But he'd actually changed because he'd been very hardly dealt with by the government that came after the French Revolution, who were very down on any kind of rebellion in England. And Godwin had kind of gone underground, and underground with him had gone all his old opinions. So when Mary and Shelley and Claire went off to Europe thinking that her father would be absolutely thrilled, he was completely horrified by what they'd done. And I think it's a very important element in the sense of desolation, alienation, isolation in Frankenstein, in the creature who Mary created, that when Mary first came back to London in 1814, her father wouldn't even let her in the house. She and Shelley were denied entrance. Even Claire was told she couldn't come back. And so they had a long, miserable time of feeling like outcasts. That's also interesting. I know William Godwin was a political philosopher, and her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was an early women's rights advocate. They had ideas that were very strong and very opinionated and were considered radical thinkers. How do you think their ideas influenced her and the lessons that they imprinted on her life with their ideas? Did it impact her writing? It's interesting that one can see how conscious Mary was of her mother in something that she once wrote when she said, if I have never written to vindicate the rights of women, I have ever defended women who have been oppressed. At every risk, I have befriended and supported victims of the social system. And you can see that's directed at anybody who did not see Mary as worthy of this kind of cloak that had been thrown over by her, her extraordinary mother. And the reason she was saying that late on in life was that, yes, indeed, Mary, when she was growing up with her father, was 
extraordinarily conscious of her mother. She worshipped the mother she had never known. When she and Shelley first began to meet, they actually had their assignations, some people even say they first made love, on her mother's grave in St Pancras. And so that tells you a little bit how much they venerated her. When Mary and Shelley eloped to Europe, one of the books that they took with them was Mary Wollstonecraft's wonderful, moving book, Letters Written During a Short Residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. Now, that book, which was written in 1795, was written after Mary Wollstonecraft, who had indeed been incredibly bold and brave. She'd first of all written this response to Edmund Burke, The Rights of Men, which she had written at absolute white-hot heat in 1791. The year after that, she wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Woman, 1792. And it was after that, very boldly, that she went off to France to witness the French Revolution at first hand. And it was in Paris that she met an American adventurer, obviously an incredibly charming, charismatic man called Gilbert Imlay, by whom she had a child, little Fanny Imlay, who is one of the most tragic figures in the story of Mary Shelley, I think. So, Fanny was born in 1794. She was three years older than Mary. And when these remarkable letters were written, it was because Mary Wollstonecraft had come back to England with little Fanny, having been dumped by Gilbert Imlay, and he'd gone to England ahead of her. And when she came back, she found he was already living with another woman. And he dispatched her and Fanny to go in search of a supposed treasure ship that he said had been lost. And, and evidence does now show there actually was a treasure ship. And yes, Mary did track it down. But the letters which so inspired and haunted Mary and Shelley were these incredibly moving letters that poor Mary Wollstonecraft wrote to Imlay from abroad. And they're all about you know, why have you forsaken me? Why have you deserted to me? My, I'm so lonely. I'm roaming the world without you. And again, if you read Frankenstein, you can't help feeling that this is the voice of the creature. Well, the dramatic story behind the late teenage Mary Shelley conceiving of Frankenstein among friends and romantic poets at Lake Geneva, Switzerland in the summer of 1816 is among the most famous origin tales in all of literature. Would you tell us the story in a little more detail and discuss the intellectual influences behind Mary Shelley's imagining, writing, and publishing this world-changing piece of horror fiction? This is one of the world's great, well, I think probably in literature, is it is the great story that everybody knows. And the story begins with the fact that Claire Claremont, Mary's very jealous stepsister, decided to find a point on it to bag a poet for herself. Mary had got Shelley. And Claire, finding that Lord Byron's, uh, after a year of marriage, was on his own in London, went along to visit him and, in fact, became pregnant by him and went out 
to Switzerland, to Lake Geneva, taking Mary and Shelley with her in the hope of somehow trapping Byron into marrying her, becoming the acknowledged father of her child. So that's why they were all out there. Byron had taken a new, very grand, big villa called the Villa Diodati, which is still there today. And if you sweet talk your way in, you can still go and see the actual room in which famously in this summer of darkness, which was the summer of darkness because Mount Tambora in Indonesia had caused an enormous eruption the year before, which laid a kind of a warning for climate change long before our own times across the world. When crops in America were all killed, people were eating nettles. In Europe, it, it was devastating. And there was constant darkness. So when Mary and Shelley and Claire and Byron and a rather handsome young doctor called William Polidori, who'd come along as Byron's doctor, were gathered together at Villa Diodati, telling ghost stories to spook themselves, which they loved doing. The weather was extremely obliging. There was lightning playing around the peaks of the Jura across the lake. There were candles being lit at three in the afternoon. There was rain rattling against the shutters. There was everything conducive to terror. And that was the setting in which the ghost stories were told and in which Byron said, why don't we all write a ghost story of our own? Now, here comes an interesting question. At the time, Dr. Polidori had been commissioned by Byron's publisher to keep a diary because Byron was already very, very famous. Shelley, it has to be said, at this point was not famous at all. And Mary, who had not written Frankenstein, was the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, but not famous in her own right in the least. But Byron was worth keeping a diary about. So William Polidori kept a diary all the time they were there. And in Polidori's diary, he says very clearly, they all started writing stories the next morning. Well, that's what he says, and I think that's what we should believe, in which case we can assume that remarkably Frankenstein began to be written early that summer. But let's just jump forward for a moment, and it is a big jump. That's 1816. Now we've got to jump right forward, fast forward, past Shelley's death, tragically of drowning in 1822, leaving poor Mary with a little boy to bring up, no money, and a need to return to England to get him into school and to lead the respectable life to be kind of restored to society after this shocking life with Shelley, which had kind of made her an outcast. You know, by 1831, when she was offered the chance of a reprint of Frankenstein, which would earn her some money. She, for the first time, wrote it a preface. Now, it was only then, in 1831, when Mary was needing the money to send her son to school, that she produced this incredibly famous romantic story that we know. Mary's version by then was, everybody else thought of a story to tell, 
But I, myself, could not think of a story. And she says in the preface, day after day, I came down and I felt so embarrassed. They'd all got their stories. I hadn't got mine. And then in the preface, she tells us that she one night had a reverie or a dream. And it's worth remembering that in the late 1820s, the whole idea of dreams as a source of inspiration had become incredibly fashionable. So I think Mary knew what she was doing here. She wasn't just taking it from Kubla Khan and Coleridge, who she knew. Anyway, Mary said that she had had a dream. And in this dream, she had seen the major scene of Frankenstein, which is the scene in which the creature comes to life. And she described that memorably in that preface in a way that everybody who reads the book always connects with the book. And she was quite right. The preface was wonderfully successful. And the book did after that sell very well. But in fact, back in 1816, what had actually happened was she didn't really get going until the end of the summer. She carried on writing it when she got back to England with Shelley that autumn. And importantly, during the autumn of 1816, two tragedies took place, which I think feed into this central thing in Frankenstein, which is the sense of guilt and isolation. And it's there, I think, in the fact that in September 1816, poor Fanny Imlay, who was Mary's half-sister, killed herself in an inn at Swansea, wearing, touchingly, Mary Wollstonecraft's underclothes, which had got her initials on it. That was the only way they could identify her. And three months later, Shelley's wife, Harriet Westbrook, was found drowned floating in the serpentine, pregnant. Those two deaths haunted Mary Shelley. And I believe that that sense of anguish and unhappiness also fed into her feeling of tremendous empathy for the creature. And it's important to realise also that Mary's father was a remarkable novelist as well as a philosopher, and he'd written the year before they went out to Geneva a wonderfully successful and imaginative novel called Caleb Williams, which has in it the idea of a doppelganger. Now, in Frankenstein, one of the key elements to it, which has been brilliantly performed on stage in a production with Benedict Cumberpatch in England and the National Theatre, perhaps he came to America, where the two actors playing Frankenstein and the creature would swap places each night. So you were never quite sure who was the Frankenstein and who was the creature. And that is central to Caleb Williams, this wonderful novel greatly admired by both Shelley and by Mary. And it's very much also a part of the story of Frankenstein. After the creature has been given birth, if you like, in what Frankenstein calls his vile laboratory, 
He's created it from various limbs, giant limbs. I'm always rather perplexed by the giant limbs. I can't think why he couldn't just choose ordinary sized limbs, but he picked out kind of eight foot legs and eight foot arms, which always seems rather strange to me. Anyway, he had picked out the limbs and assembled them in his laboratory. And he had galvanized them with the help of lightning and the idea of lightning probably did come from the 1816 summer when they were accompanied by lightning the whole time around the lake. So with a lightning mast, he had galvanized his creature into life. He, he had become God. And it's very interesting that during the time that Mary was writing Frankenstein and talking with the group out at Geneva, there was a great deal of talk about a man called Dr. Lawrence, William Lawrence. Now, William Lawrence had been a doctor who had looked after Mary since she was a child when she had a serious ailment with her arm, and they were all very worried and thought that perhaps her arm would have to be amputated. It was Lawrence who had looked at it. And then later, he attended to Shelley, so they knew Lawrence quite well. But the one who knew Lawrence best was William Polidori, who'd actually been to his lectures and heard him. Now, Lawrence had been radical in suggesting, more apropos doctors and their patients, I think, that the doctor is God and that the divine spark which creates man is not God-given. Now, back in the early 19th century, this was heresy. This was really dangerous talk. And Mary is evidently thinking about that when she turns Victor Frankenstein, who is hubris incarnate. He does think he's God. He does think he can create man. And she certainly is referencing Lawrence's ideas there. But of course, the, one of the most important lessons that Mary wanted us to be taught by her book was about parenting, which is a very, very modern subject. What does Frankenstein do once his child has been galvanized into life? He expresses absolute horror he runs away from it. He goes to bed having terrible dreams about embracing his beloved cousin Elizabeth and seeing grave worms crawling out of the bedclothes. And he is absolutely filled with horror by what the creature looks like. And as I said, I don't know why he chose to make a creature with eight-foot arms and legs, but anyway, he did. And having done so, when it began to move, I can imagine it was indeed very horrifying, probably far more so than the rather handsome Benedict Cumberpatch could ever be. But Frankenstein was appalled by his creation and rejected it. And really, this is the key element of the book for Mary. The creature is rejected. And her father had believed in society as a force for good. Mary's suggestion is that the creature is innocent, but that he learns to be evil from the way man treats him. And that is what turns him into what she never calls him, which is a monster. She only ever calls him the creature.
And that was her main lesson, I think, that she wanted to get across, that if you, Shelley put it in an anonymous review of the book, treat somebody ill and they will become wicked. Treat them well and they can become good. When Mary Shelley established this entirely new genre of fiction, she had cautionary lessons, as you described, about the excesses of modern science and medicine. Can you talk just a little more about what Mary Shelley was trying to accomplish with Frankenstein? Was she also using the novel to warn humanity and posterity about the limits of scientific experiments and trying to play God? Evidently, Mary was talking about hubris. And if we look at the way Frankenstein is constructed, which is very, very sophisticated for a young woman to conceive, and at that time was very original. It's like Chinese boxes. There's a story within a story within a story. The outer story, which is very relevant to the question you just asked, Mary, is the story of Captain Walton. Now, Captain Walton is a man who wants to sail up to the North Pole and conquer the meaning of science, which he believes he will find there. Now, Mary actually, I think, formed the idea of writing about his journey on a whaling ship, which then gets stuck in pack ice. It never gets to the North Pole, but somewhere near. When she was just a very young girl, in 1811, she was only 14. She'd been sent up to Scotland by her father because of her ailment with her arm and because she got on very badly with her stepmother, Mrs. Clermont. I think it was partly to get her out of the way. And while she was up in Scotland, she was staying with a very, very clever family called the Baxters, who lived at a place called Bouty Ferry. And Bouty Ferry actually looked out at the whaling port of Dundee. And the year before Mary Shelley arrived there, a boat called the Rodney, a whaling vessel, had been trapped in pack ice. And I suspect that that was the original inspiration for this outer story of hubris, which encloses the inner story of the hubris of Frankenstein in believing that he can actually create man. But interestingly, certainly in the first version of Frankenstein, the one that appeared in 1818-1819, appeared over that Christmas, in a very modest edition by Lackington of only 500 copies. But in that edition, she says almost nothing at all about science. You're left to scratch your head over how this creature was created, because she gives us very little clue. It's only in the 1831 edition that she added in words like galvanism. Galvanism having been something that Mary herself had first-hand experience of, because when she was a child living in her father's house, one of their great friends, Dr. Carlyle, 
one day came round to the house and told them about a galvanic experiment that he himself had seen when, by using electric wires, the body of a dead man had been galvanised into life and had flung up an arm and actually struck one of the spectators in the face. And I gather the poor man died of shock some hours later. So Mary certainly knew about galvanism, but she only chose to mention it then. And I think that that tells us, really, that she was adding it then because she felt it would add to the popularity and interest of the book. But it wasn't the first thought in her mind. And I really do not think that central to her thoughts was the idea of warning man not to be ambitious. Because she was, after all, we must remember, married to a man who wrote about Prometheus, who had immense ambition of his own. I mean, Shelley was slow to achieve fame, but he was tremendously ambitious in his ideas. And Mary adored and worshipped him. So it seems to me very unlikely that she would have opposed the idea of being ambitious. We have to remember that Mary herself had lost her first child. They called her Claire. But when Claire was only a few weeks old, the baby died in her cot. And Mary had written most pathetically in letters to friends and in her diary about dreaming that they had rubbed the child together and brought it back to life. And I think that ideas like that, the idea that you can somehow bring something back to life, was very much in her mind. But I think she was a very devoted mother. I mean, Percy, the only surviving child, was almost mothered to death. Mary couldn't bear to let him out of her sight. She was somebody who had never known what it was to have a mother herself. And her father, although a brilliant man, I think was not one of those people who is sort of very physically warm. It's very difficult to imagine William Godwin dandling Mary on his knee. I think it was something that came to her from a sense of absence, from what she had not had, that parenting the thing that is most denied most cruelly to the creature is critical to the happiness and to the growth of a human being. And I feel myself that that is the central lesson of Frankenstein. In the novel, the monster, while abandoned, disoriented, and in isolation, learns from a family to read and write about good and evil and the history of human societies. Also, while in the woods, the creature comes across three books, Milton's Paradise Lost, Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther, and Plutarch's Lives. Can you tell me the significance of those books? It's a very good question. And the reason that, of course, Mary enables the creature to learn rather conveniently, he's eavesdropping outside the window of the de Lacy's cottage, because, of course, pathetically, he has already become aware that his appearance terrifies people. So he learns by simply eavesdropping while they are reading. They are very, very learned villagers. They're not really villagers 
at all. They're a, fam a learned noble family in exile, which all works rather well for them reading books of this kind. So what this provides the creature with is an extraordinary voice. It's one of the most striking things in the story of Frankenstein that the creature has an eloquence which Frankenstein himself can never match. The, the creature is capable of sounding like Milton at his finest. Now, why did Mary particularly choose that book, which is really the crucial book? The Sorrows of Young Werther and Plutarch's Lives are books that would provide the creature with ideas of civilization and how man behaves. But Paradise Lost was the book which Shelley was reading to Mary aloud after they returned from Switzerland, when they'd gone to Bath to be with Claire while she gave birth to her little girl by Byron. So Mary, thinking about Frankenstein, beginning to write Frankenstein, was listening every night to Paradise Lost and, of course, registering the extraordinary figure of Lucifer, and we all know the thing about the wicked people or the bad people get all the good lines. And there's no doubt that in Milton, Lucifer certainly outshines everybody else. And I think that Lucifer gave Mary the idea of a fallen angel, which does very much lend itself to her creation of the creature. And the creature himself does identify with Lucifer. He does see himself as somebody who is a fallen angel, an outcast, an, an alienated creature. And so she put that particular book to the double use. He's providing the monster with the creature, with eloquence. And he's also providing the creature with a kind of a role part. Finally, as we celebrate Halloween, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein remains one of the greatest, most influential and prescient novels ever written. These days, though, classic novels are sometimes dismissed as dated or disparaged as elitist. How should parents and teachers talk about Frankenstein in Mary Shelley's life in ways that will help young people find them as compelling as they were to you when you decided to write her biography? I think for anybody reading about Mary Shelley today, what is really inspiring about her is her ability to deal with the way the world perceived her. I mean, where we live in a world where we are constantly aware of how the world perceives us in trolling and the internet and all such things. And Mary had to deal in a way that was extraordinarily hard for a young woman at that time with being excluded from society. So when she married Shelley, when well, when she eloped with Shelley in 1814, she took a step that put her from being the glorious daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft and the young woman who is going to make a difference in the world today into darkness. She couldn't know what was coming next. There was no money. 
there were no friends. Uh, Shelley had just a, a little scattering of friends, but very few who would stick with him. They were regarded as very, very shocking figures. And I think that's something that speaks to us today is the courage with which Mary, in solitude after Shelley's death in 1822, where she'd been cut off by Shelley's family, who was going to give her no money at all. She was in a foreign country. She was living out in Italy. She had no money, no support. She'd written, I think, four novels, but they had had a very, very modest success, nothing that could bring home the bacon for her and her little boy. And the way that she set herself to recreating her life come back to England, where she, to her amazement, find that Frankenstein had become famous, and so had she, because it had been put onto the stage the very year that she came back, 1823. So the novel itself did achieve a fame as a play all through the 19th century, far more so, it's worth saying, than as a book. It was the play that everybody wanted to see and to talk about and to put on in country house parties. But Mary, admirably, I think, dedicated herself to being the good mother that she had never had herself. She was a devoted mother to Percy and to really giving Shelley the position that she felt that he had not been given by the critics. It was really Mary single-handed who managed to put Shelley centre stage. She did, one might think, slightly overdo it. I mean, she, she sanctified him so much that she almost emasculated him. But there is that side to it. I think she did slightly overdo things, but one can understand why, because his reputation was so terrible. So I think that's what one can take away from Mary, is a real lesson in how did a woman in those times with no help from the state, no help from society, manage to survive alone and do well, create a new life for herself, become a respected and admired figure? And I think that that in itself is really admirable. She was very courageous in what she did to help women who were outside society. Once she helped two women who wanted to get married, pretty unusual for those days, I can tell you. And Mary helped them forge passports and get away to France where they had a secret marriage. And it's a pretty courageous thing to do, I think, back in the 1840s. When we're talking about Frankenstein, I think that the importance of the book today is... There's no getting away from the fact that it is just a wonderfully readable, incredible, compelling story. I'd really defy anybody who's read it not to be thrilled by it and by the creation of the creature and by the chase and the drama and the excitement. It's wonderful stuff. But also, I think, for anybody interested in creative writing, it's a very, very good early lesson in how to write a very ingenious and sophisticated novel with one story set within another story within another story. And it's only after you've read it that you realise that practically the entire book has been told to you by the creature. But you tend to forget that, and that's very clever writing on Mary's part. 
And I think the most important lesson, which is one I've, I've said before, is that it is above all about something which never goes out of date. It's as important now as it ever was, which is to stick by your children. A terrible story of a hubristic man who creates a child he finds ugly, and because it is ugly, he rejects it. And I think that that is a terrible idea which remains as topical and as important today as it was in Mary Shelley's time. Miranda, that was all wonderful. Would you be willing to read a favorite passage from your biography of Mary Shelley to close out the show? Absolutely. I'd be delighted to read a bit from a book that I worked so hard to research and to produce. And I'm very proud of the fact that it seems to have remained the considered the definitive life of Mary Shelley. This is from a part that I called The Afterlife, which describes Mary's life after Shelley's death and also the life of her in how we look at her after her death. Mary wrote her one great work when she had only begun to taste the bitterness of rejection. The most harrowing aspect of her life is to see how, through no fault of her own, it began to mirror her novel. Mary, like her creature, became a pariah. When Shelley died, his friends had already been made aware that his marriage was on the rocks and that the fault was Mary's. Disgraced by her connection to him, tortured by the sense of her own inadequacy as a wife, publicly disowned by his family, Mary in her widowhood was thrust into the icy regions of solitude to which she had banished the creature of her imagination. Hounded, persecuted and vilified, she taught herself how to survive. She remained, until the end of her life, generous, forgiving, tolerant and hopeful. The depression which she voiced in her journals was, as we always need to remember, hidden from her friends. Her father was one of the very few people who saw and pitied the disposition to melancholy which he had inherited from his wife. One wonders how much more sympathy Mary might have gained if she had been a little less fiercely reserved. Mary Shelley is not the active, enthusiastic, optimistic woman described by recent biographers. She is a woman who struggled all her life against the unpredictable volatility of her own nature who never knew when the black cloud of depression would settle around her, who was tormented by the sense of her own inability to become what she felt the word expected her to be, a second Mary Wollstonecraft, who tortured herself with the thought that every misfortune that came to her was directed by fate as her punishment for having taken Shelley from his first wife and for having failed him herself. The most admirable thing about Mary is that feeling as she did, she never surrendered, seldom revealed her unhappiness, and continued until the end of her life to work to win Shelley, never herself, the honour that she felt was his due. Your writing is a gift to all of us, Miranda. Thank you so much. We have great appreciation for all that you do. 
And we certainly are very thrilled that you were able to join us for this podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And both Mary and her wonderful novel, I love talking about them. So thank you so much. I'm sure you inspired many listeners to read it again or a first time if they haven't already. It was wonderful. I have a tweet of the week from Ira Stoll from Education Next. Catholic schools are a rare bright spot in nation's report card for 2022 data. So we provide some optimistic news from an important segment of the American education system. School matters, Gerard. Being at school makes a difference for kids, no matter what form it takes, right? It could be in-person learning, but high quality homeschooling, hybrid learning, all of the things too many kids didn't have access to at school matters. Gerard, next week, believe it or not, we have another Pulitzer Prize winner. We are going to be speaking with Jack Rakoff of Stanford University, and mm-hmm. he's going to be coming to us to discuss James Madison and the Constitution. So I know we've got a lot of uh, learning curve listeners that are history buffs. Looking forward to it. Until then, Gerard, have a very safe and happy Halloween, and we'll keep thinking of solutions to this crisis we find ourselves in in the moment. We'll, we'll promise our listeners that in due course. Take care. Knowing I have you as a partner, I know we will find solutions. Sounds good. Have a good one. Bye-bye.